This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry. Later in the program, I'll be chatting with my co-hosts Jennifer Sabre and colleagues about the potential for dismembering Mark Zuckerberg's social media giant Facebook. But first, we're handing over to our colleagues in Asia to give us the lowdown on the latest developments in US President Donald Trump's trade war with Beijing. Well, it's been a rocky patch for relations between Washington and Beijing, with US President Donald Trump raising levies to 25% on $200 billion of goods, with more threatened and Beijing retaliating in kind. I'm Clara Ferreira Marquez in Singapore, and to discuss the implications of all this and more, I have with me Chris Bedor, our columnist in Hong Kong, who looks at China policy. So Chris, tell us a little bit about how concerned we should really be, how much of this will stick, and how much of it is really posturing before the two leaders, before Donald Trump and Xi Jinping meet again. Well, I think it's. I think the short answer is that it's quite worrying. Um, this is a pretty dramatic escalation that we've seen over the past um, one to one and a half weeks here. Um, and as you note, I think attention is now starting to turn towards the G20 meeting uh, next month, where um, there's the thinking is that Trump and Xi will will meet like they did in Argentina last year, and the hopes now is for some sort of, you know, Argentina 2.2.0 in the sense that. The prospect of more tariffs coming down the line. Now, the Trump administration is saying they want to slap tariffs on pretty much uh, all goods coming from China. Um, That threat might uh, lead to, in turn, kind of a ceasefire, or at least that's what optimists are going to be hoping as as we go forward. But as it stands right now, it's it's quite serious. It, It doesn't look great. Tell me a little bit about the Chinese retaliation that we've seen this week. It's interesting some of what they've chosen to to um, to raise tariffs on and and to, to levy to put levies on and what they have chosen not to. Uh, And it is probably a little bit more severe than we were expecting. Well, I think that the context you have to view this in is also, I think you're absolutely right. I I think it also comes as um, sort of a part of a broader narrative. So if you remember back, Trump initially threatens um, that he's going to um, suddenly increase the, the tariffs on about $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. The thinking then is, well, we don't know if this is bluster, if it's a negotiating ploy, or if it's if it's for real. And it turns out that it, it was indeed for real. And then the question became, well, what are the Chinese going to do? So they did, in the end, decide to dispatch uh, Vice Premier Liu He, who's uh, sort of been kind of the, the point man under Xi for these negotiations. They, he was sent to Washington. Um, but apparently he didn't really give much in terms of concessions. And now the Chinese have said that uh, they're going to retaliate in, in sort of a tit-for-tat manner, um, like they have been doing since the beginning. Um, so you add that all up, and essentially, uh, if Trump was playing hardball, they've signaled that they're willing to play hardball as well, that they're not going to really give tariffs, that they're going to do what they've said they're going to do from the beginning. And so you do get a very much a standoff on both ends. Right, and it comes at a pretty delicate time for the Chinese economy. We've seen the yuan currency uh, depreciate pretty fast as soon as the the tariffs were announced on Friday, so at the beginning of this week. Where I mean, how much can China do to cushion itself against that? Well, I think that it can against the currency. It has a, a bit fewer options, but more broadly in terms of growth, I think that it's it's 
it's probably a bit misleading to look at kind of the headline growth number um, and the impact of the trade war on that, because it, it will definitely have an impact. It's just that policymakers, whether they're in China or the Federal Reserve in the United States, they can always offset part of that by simply easing monetary policy. Obviously, that's going to have some impacts on, on the currency, but um, they can mitigate part of the damage. So I, I don't think... I don't think GDP per se or growth is probably the area that you want to look to as far as, you know, reflecting how much damage this has done. I think instead it's, it's clearly going to be in supply chains and um, whether companies decide that they want to continue investing in China, whether that's capital or investing in relationships with suppliers and so forth, or whether they want to start diversifying away from, from China at this point. It's interesting because you're, you're talking now about an issue that we've covered in a, in a couple of columns now, which is really the fact that no matter what happens on trade, even if a deal is reached, the long-term effects of this will linger in all sorts of non-tariff barriers that will be pulled up by, by both sides. I mean, what's the risk that something has been started here that really neither of the two sides will fully control? I think I think it it is a risk. I mean, I think we're going to have to see probably how things shape up in the run up to and and then during kind of the G20 summit um, next month and see if if the sides are willing to de-escalate again like they did uh, late last year. Um, but I think you know taking a step back, the broader point here: if you're sitting in the board of a major company um, or making capital allocation decisions. Um, you're looking at since the start of the trade war until now, um, it's actually been quite unpredictable. There's been some, you know, sudden lurches in either direction, um, and these have generally not cut in your way. If you presuming that you don't like the tariffs, um, so if you're making capital allocation decisions for the next not just the next few months, but perhaps even the next decade or beyond, um, you now have to consider the possibility that we're we're not just going back to normal. Even if there is a trade deal, I, I think you've now been pretty much spooked that. Um, you're going to be asked questions by investors about why you're making some of the decisions that you are and that you might be held responsible if you're making a disproportionate number of decisions in China. And it turns out that some of these tensions continue uh, maybe even into a second term of Trump or or if somebody else comes to power, if, uh, you know, a Democratic administration. So um, I, I think that we've definitely we've we've kind of passed the the point of no return in, in a certain sense for business. Absolutely. Brilliant. And certainly on the Democratic side, we've seen quite a lot of um, support for the strong stance on China. So it's not like there's opposition there, but a bleak outlook in any event. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Clara and Chris. Now we turn to Facebook, which has just been unfriended by one of its founders. Writing in The New York Times, Chris Hughes called for regulators to break Facebook up. He joins a host of politicians in doing so, including presidential hopefuls from Elizabeth Warren to Kamala Harris, who are both making it a campaign issue. And even some Republicans like Senator John Hawley have Facebook on their radar screens. And carving up the 530 billion company might even make financial sense. So to explain the wise house, wherefores and weathers, I'm joined by three of our tech and media experts. Jen Sabre here, obviously, in New York. Gina Chon who is currently on location at Pebble Beach, you lucky person, and Liam Proud, who's hanging out late in our London office. Thanks, all of you, for joining. Thanks for having us. Hey. 
So, Jonas, turn first to you. Just a very quick background. We know Facebook's been in trouble for a while with, with, with people not liking the way they do things. But why has it got to how has it got to this point where we're talking about breakups? OK, so I think really uh, it started around 2017, the beginning of 2017, where Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, basically denied that um, Facebook played any sort of role whatsoever in the 2016 election of the U.S. president in terms of Russia using uh, the platform to manipulate voters. And and that's that's when everything started to snowball. And um, people started looking closely into it. They had several um, data breaches and data leaks. And I, I mean, I just couldn't even keep track of how many things that have gone wrong at Facebook uh, over the past two years. And I think what that has done is it has brought attention to Washington and everyone is now looking at this and saying it's just too big and just too powerful. Yeah. So, Liam, turning to you, you're the one who's done run the numbers over this. We've got, obviously, Facebook as one entity, but it also owns two other um, pretty well-used um, social media apps. Uh, just talk us through, you know, what is, is, is there a good financial rationale for breaking this up? I mean, the whole reason of putting it together was to be able to, you know, get as much access to data and people's ability to interact with each other as possible. So, well, we've got Instagram and WhatsApp. Talk us through how these three things work together and, and, sh- and can break up. Yeah, so, I mean, there could be. I mean, it's, it's obviously very highly speculative. But, I mean, one way to think about it is to say, well, separate out the, the three main businesses there, you know, the main Facebook website and then Instagram, the photo sharing site, and then WhatsApp, the messaging service. And then you can do a sort of rough exercise where you value them separately based on, you know, the kind of multiples, the basic, basic stock market multiples that their peers trade on. And, and, and if you do that, I mean, it kind of looks like you could, you could make a bit of money by doing it. I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon that, that companies with different divisions trade at a kind of a discount to the sum of their parts. Um, I think it's less common in technology where you'd usually think the value of these kind of, you know, overall ecosystems are greater than the sum of their parts. But, but obviously, Facebook shares have been beaten up so much in the past uh, year or so because of all the reasons that Jen goes through that, that, that it might work. Okay, so I mean, if we broke it up, though, um, you've got some parts of the company don't make money, which obviously isn't always a problem in the world of tech for public investors. But now we've seen how the likes of Uber and Lyft, okay, very different business models, but they have done poorly after their IPOs. So is is there a good reason to think that, that a broken up Facebook would do okay for shareholders, given those issues? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you can, you, can, you can kind of, as you say, Someone like Snapchat, for example, will snap the owner of Snapchat doesn't make any money, but it at least trades on about eight times sales. You know, if you if you strip out the cash position, then it's it's the kind of the valuation of the company is eight times the revenue it will make on a year. Now, if you if you do that exercise for Instagram and put it on the Snap multiple, then it's probably worth about 120 billion dollars, or just slightly more than that. And then you know, WhatsApp is a bit trickier because you know there isn't a kind of standalone messaging company but but the metric i used was you know when they when they bought it in i think it's 2014 um the the valuation per user when facebook bought it i mean was was about 42 dollars per user now it, it it's almost tripled the number of users since then it's got about 1.5 billion people using the messaging service right. now and if you just apply that same number then whatsapp is probably worth about 60 billion or so about 63 billion so just about half of instagram now, if you add them up and kind of take it off the whole bundle of where Facebook is trading at the moment, then it would imply that the main Facebook site is only worth about kind of 300 billion or so. Now, that's a much lower multiple than Twitter, for example. It's about 5.5 compared to 7.2. 
So if you then put it on Twitter to multiple, add the whole thing up again, and you could make an argument that everything uh, you know, split out would be worth about 20% more than the whole bundle is today. Okay, that gets us pretty much to the point of 20% where we start thinking a, a breakup is worth it from a financial point of view for shareholders. Let's go to the next point, though. Um, Gina, let's bring you in on this. Um, do regulators and politicians really want to push this through? You think, yes, we've got, as you mentioned at the beginning, several high-profile politicians who want to consider a breakup. But how likely do you think it is that Washington's going to push for one or be able to get one through? There's definitely momentum and it's growing. Um, as you mentioned, there's several uh, politicians who are running for president who are now calling for it. Um, we're looking at the Federal Trade Commission um, still uh, trying to finalize their penalty against Facebook for violating uh, an old consent agreement on privacy and data usage. Um, so there's definitely growing momentum. It's just, you know, whether they actually push that button. Um, there's a sense that if you're going to break it up, that would really have to come from the Justice Department. Uh, I don't see uh, them moving forward yet, although the new attorney general has talked about concerns about uh, big companies in Silicon Valley. So uh, it could be something that they look at, but it would require um, a lot of resources and a lot of time. Uh, so it's the Justice Department is pretty bogged down with a lot of other fights with Congress. So it's unclear if um, that's really where its focus is going to be. So Facebook in some ways is lucky because um, there's, you know, definitely a lot of animosity towards them in Washington. But the question is, you know, whether the town can really get its act together to move against them. OK, now here's the other question, which is if if it were broken up, is it a, would it be a punitive breakup for past transgressions or would it actually solve for the problems that people think Facebook has? So would you really do anything fundamentally different to the company if it didn't have WhatsApp and Instagram. Facebook itself is still a, a very big platform. Well, that's uh, one of the arguments against it, um, that even if you break it up, the problems of privacy vi violations, um, data breaches, uh, election meddling, all that um, are still going to be factors. So you would have to think about um, wider uh, issues and, and toolkits to address those problems. I went to see Margareta Vestager in, in Brussels recently, who's been the competition commissioner on the European um, Commission, who's been fining all these companies, I mean, not so much Facebook, and, and she described the idea of breaking these companies up as like a kind of a hydra, the, the, the ancient Greek monster, where you'd, you'd lop the head off, but you suddenly three or four more would spring up in their place and they'd have all the same kind of problems. And then, of course, you'd, you'd be bogged down in court for years and years and years. So what would her solution be then? So she has an idea, which is that you would basically tackle what she sees as the root of the problem, which is the fact that these companies sit on these enormous hordes of data that they don't share with anyone. So, I mean, she kind of envisages a world, I think, where you could, you could pick up your, all your photos and your lists of friends and all the data that Facebook has on you, and you could seamlessly move that over to another social network. And then if you could rig it up so that those social networks spoke to each other so that you could still see, you know, your friends update on Facebook, but you'd be seeing it through some different interface on, you know, whatever the competing social network, then you'd kind of, you'd be dismantling these monopolies through the side door while, rather than having this, 
you know, extremely long and painful court fight. Meanwhile, the, you know, while you're having this court fight, the, the dominance would just be perpetuating itself the whole time. So she's basically arguing for a socialised social network system, I suppose. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the buzzword everyone in Brussels is using at the moment, if you speak to all the competition um, wonks, is interoperability. And it's, it's, it's easy to imagine, right? It's basically how email works. You know, if I'm using Gmail and you're using Yahoo and someone else is using Hotmail, we can email each other seamlessly. Yeah. There's a kind of basic protocol there. But the, the problem, I suppose, is that the data is where all the money is for these firms. So, Jen, would you see um, the US even considering a model like that, where a Facebook and a Twitter and a, you know, name your new social network, Venmo, something else, could come along and just easily speak to each other and port your data from one to the other? Well, I mean, I don't know so much about that, but I, I do think that there is a movement to try and, and protect the data and personal data. And um, what we see it in California, where Gina is right now, where they have a bill uh, slated to go into effect uh, in a couple of years, where basically they, they're trying to give consumers more power over their data. And I think that's kind of the idea, mm. certainly in Europe, where, you know, why should these big companies basically uh, profit from, you know, your information? Right. And, and, and they take a lot of your information. Yeah. All right. And let's final question to you, Gina. Um, all the time we're talking about breakup on this piece, but we've got Zuckerberg, who is Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, who is thinking about ways to get into China where Facebook's banned. And he's considering growing the company through mergers and acquisitions. So a completely different spin on things. What What's the deal there? Yeah, the uh, company has not been allowed in China um, since 2009, which is obviously a huge hole for a global company like Facebook and uh, a market of about 1.4 billion people, the Chinese population, um, is a huge one to tap. So Facebook has been trying to figure out um, various ways to get back in. Zuckerberg learned Mandarin, gave a speech at a Chinese university in 2014 in the local language. Uh, but so far, none of their efforts have worked. So I think they are starting to look at sort of smaller wins, if you will, one of them being uh, possible minority investments in uh, local tech companies there and possibly making inroads through that path. So, Gina, one of the things that jumps out at me is this seems to be a similar kind of move that Yahoo made um, in 2005 when Jerry Yang, uh, who was the co-founder of Yahoo, went off and basically spent $1 billion and uh, took a 40% stake in Alibaba. And, you know, as as we know, Yahoo's business deteriorated quite quickly. And then Alibaba, that stake, ended up being really the most valuable part of Yahoo. Um, so it was a very smart investment. And so it kind of strikes me that you know, Facebook is kind of out there doing and looking at the same type of uh, type of thing. Yeah, no, definitely. It has a lot of echoes of what Yahoo did with Alibaba. Um, I mean, Facebook would be coming into a much more mature market than what uh, Jerry Yang saw in 2005. Um, it's much more competitive. So it's a question of, you know, whether an investment could be as lucrative as Alibaba. But there are definitely uh, opportunities and um, they're searching around for them. Um, one of the problems is there's a whole host of other issues they have to think of, which is, you know, just the politics in, in China, the politics in the U.S., the tensions between those two countries right now, um, you know, what, how welcome would people there be about uh, even a minority stake in their companies? 
So Facebook, I think, hasn't made any decisions and they're moving slowly, but um, they are trying to look at a range of options. Yeah, I want to go back to, to one point, um, Anthony, that you made, which was a, about M&A. And I sort of think that the larger takeaway here is that even if Facebook isn't broken up, um, which, you know, given the current political environment, it might be difficult. I think one thing to keep in mind, though, is that for Facebook to grow, it's going to be much harder for them going forward. Because if you think about their two most lucrative markets, which is the United States and Europe, um, they're under so much scrutiny and pressure that any future M&A, no matter how small it is, is going to just you know get the microscope. And I bet a lot of regulators will think twice about waving through uh, an Instagram-like purchase or a WhatsApp-like purchase. So in some ways, Facebook you know has to to think, okay, how are we going to grow? What are we going to do going forward? And you know this could present a, a problem for them in the future. There you go. But all roads looking a little bit strange for Facebook right now. But Facebook as the Yahoo of the next decade. That's a that's a fantastic call to make. Let's see where that goes. Uh, guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. Much appreciated. Thanks for having us. Thanks. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Clara Ferreira Marquez, Gina Chon, Chris Bedore and Liam Proud for coming on the show. And we doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in as well. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and its sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.